Very good morning to all those who are here, as well as to those who are, who are joining us online. Um, please, could you open your Bibles or your devices or your order of service uh, to um, our Old Testament reading today, 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verses 17 to 27. Uh, looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verses 17 to 27. And uh, let me lead us in prayer uh, as we begin. Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray that you help us now as we look at this passage. Uh, strengthen me to speak your Word rightly and uh, uh, in your Spirit's power. And please help each one of us uh, to respond rightly to you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a nation in grief on our TV screens and in social media. And not just actually one nation, but people from all over the world mourning for the death of Queen Elizabeth. In our passage today, we see the poetic words that were given by the Holy Spirit through David to mourn for the first king of Israel and for his son. But before we do that, we need to understand the background to this poetry. Last year, and indeed the year before, when we looked through 1 Samuel, we saw how God was going to overturn the situation to make things right in Israel. At the end of the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone just did as he pleased. But God raised up Samuel as a prophet, priest, leader of Israel. And when he was old, at his people's insistence, God instructed him to anoint Saul as king. Saul started off well, but somewhere along the way stopped trusting God. And that was shown in disobedience to his commandments. In the end, God rejected Saul and told Samuel to anoint David secretly. The Spirit came upon David and left Saul. David, God's secretly anointed one, faithfully served Saul, God's officially anointed one. Though he was just a young man, he defeated Goliath and saved his people. But, but Saul became jealous of David. He tried to kill him. David had to run away. Saul pursued him, never managed to catch him. David had two opportunities to kill Saul, but he would not touch the Lord's anointed. And so in the end, he and his men went into exile, living with Israel's enemies, the Philistines, yet secretly still carrying out God's purposes. Saul's son, Jonathan, had been very different from his father. While Saul tried to kill David, Jonathan was his close friend. He was the one who warned David about Saul. He was the one who made a covenant with David, acknowledging the promise of God to make David king and to cut off his enemies from the earth. Towards the end of the book, Saul was sinking deeper and deeper into sin, for God had already rejected him as king. And his last battle against the Philistines was approaching. Meanwhile, down south, David and his men discovered the Amalekites, the bitter enemies of God's people, had raided their town while they were away and taken their wives and children captive. Uh, David and his men pursued them, rescued their families, slaughtered the Amalekites, took a whole lot of spoil, uh, which they not only shared, which he not only shared with his men, but, but, but with the elders of Judah. And while this was happening down south, Paul, uh, Saul and his three sons, including Jonathan, were killed in that battle against the Philistines in a place far away 
called Mount Gilboa. And in that battle, all of them were killed, and Saul by his own sword. And then last week, we heard how a lying Amalekite brought news to David about Saul and Jonathan's death. Trying to curry favor with David, he claimed that he'd been the one to finally kill Saul. And he brought David Saul's crown and armlet, but, but David would have no part in Saul's death. So after weeping for Saul, David pronounced the death penalty on the Amalekite. For by his own mouth he had testified, I have killed the Lord's anointed. We pick up the story now in verse 17 of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 1, which introduces David's lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. A lament is a song of mourning. Uh, it is a song through which sadness can be expressed, especially in death. Uh, someone, someone once said that a lament, lament is grief put into words. David grieved over Saul and Jonathan, and as a psalmist, he wrote this moving piece of poetry. The lament was not just to be private. Verse 18 says it was to be taught to the people of Judah on David's instructions. Uh, and so David's lament was to be the corporate lament of God's people. Just on the side, there are very few hymns or contemporary Christian songs which are lament. Compare that, you see in quite a number of laments in the Bible, a number of psalms that are psalms of lament, and there's a whole book of lamentations. Next time the diocese is a hymn writing competition, maybe someone should try writing a lament. The author of 2 Samuel tells us that this lament in verse 18 is written in the book of Jasher. Now the word, for, the word Jasher derives from the Hebrew word for upright or just. And so that was probably a collection of Hebrew poetry, possibly about heroes, and it came to have abiding significance, this, 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 this lament. It had usefulness in Israel beyond the occasion for which it was written. Now as part of God's word, the Bible, this lament comes to us. To teach, rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. Have a look with me now at David's lament in your Bibles or in the order of service. If you can see it as a whole, then have a look at that. Did you notice a phrase, phrase getting repeated as we, as, as we read it before? Look at the second half of verse 19. How the mighty have fallen. Then go down to verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. And then verse 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Do you see the recurring theme? How the mighty have fallen. Now when you think of it, that is actually closely linked to the theme of 1 and 2 Samuel as a whole. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer set the agenda for the whole book. Let me read you a selection of verses from that poetic prayer. Verse 4 says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And verse 6, Hannah says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And then in verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, will one day echo Hannah's prayer in what we know as the Magnificat, saying in Luke 1.52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. See, throughout 1 Samuel, 
We've seen how God was slowly bringing up David from nothing. And now, at the end of the book, we saw him finally bringing down Saul. Yet David doesn't write a psalm to rejoice at this. He, he writes a lament. And he doesn't mention God's name in the whole lament. Because he's not at this point wanting to point the finger at Saul and say, Saul, this is judgment on you. But when we read 1 and 2 Samuel together, we know that God is the one who exalts the lowly and brings down the mighty. So when we read how the mighty have fallen, we know that God is working in judgment. Now you might think that the judgment of God is a good thing. And it is. Right? God's judgment is right and pure and good and true. At one level, it's a cause for jubilant praise. In 1 Samuel, the anticipation of judgment brings comfort. Because God is going to bring down the mighty and bring up the lowly and establish his true king. But when judgment happens, its effect, even on people like Saul who deserve it, is a rightful cause for sadness and lament. What more for Jonathan, a good man, but who died in the same battle? If you know God's judgment is good, if you can rejoice in it in one hand, and yet still feel sad about it in the other, I think you're getting it right. But more about that later. For now, let's look at this lament in detail. It starts in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, the word high places there could refer to a shrine, but here it's just a hill, Mount Gilboa. You can see it in the distance. And the word glory there is not the usual word we use for the glory of God. It, it's a word that can be translated glory or beauty or ornament or surprisingly gazelle. And perhaps the picture that David is seeking to evoke in our minds as we begin this lament is of this beautiful creature lying slain on a hill. How the mighty have fallen. Just picture that. The poetry continues as David wishes that the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, wouldn't know about this, so they wouldn't gloat. Verse 20. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Now he's not talking literally here, because of course the Philistines are Enola. Right? In fact, they've desecrated Paul's, uh, Saul's body. But this is poetry. And what he's saying is that part of the tragedy of Saul and, and Jonathan is not just their loss, but the disgrace of God's name among God's enemies. They wouldn't understand that this is part of God's sovereign plan. They would just think that their God had beaten Israel's God and rejoice that they have defeated and destroyed God's anointed one. The death of the anointed one at the hand of God's enemies is a shameful thing for God's people. And so David, once again poetically, wishes a curse on Gilboa where it happened. Verse 21, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. Why? For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. If Saul's shield there poetically represents his body, then we can understand why David says it is defiled. 
because the Philistines desecrated Saul's body. And David doesn't want to say it directly in the psalm. And as the shield would no longer be oiled, so Saul would no longer be the anointed one. All this is so tragic because in earlier days, Saul and Jonathan had many great victories over God's enemies. Verse 22, from the mouth of the, from, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. God had used them to fight his enemies, to save his people, and they really did save them and point forward to the one who will one day save us. And so they were loved, they were admired by the people whom they saved. And he calls them in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In fact, despite their big differences, Jonathan actually stayed loyal to his father, and they were a formidable pair. Verse 23 continues, In life and death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You know, when you read 1 Samuel, you see all this is true, but it's only half the story, isn't it? At least for Saul. Saul also had a really bad side to him, but in this, in this song, David just puts it to one side. Just thinking now about the good things. And so the lament calls upon God's people to mourn for their king and remember the good things he did. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, with ornaments of gold on your apparel. And as the nation mourns for her king, David mourns for his friend. And while we were not sure whether the gazelle that laid slain on the high places back in verse 19 was meant to be Saul or Jonathan, there's no doubt who he has in mind in verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. If we picture that gazelle lying slain on a hill before. Now change that picture, to, that picture to David's closest friend, Jonathan. And feel David's pain as he remembers not just Jonathan's exploits, but his friendship. Verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David's love for Jonathan, Jonathan's love for David, was deep. And the verse says, brotherly. Sad that in this day and age I have to say it, but please don't sexualize this. Men can have deep brotherly friendships without it becoming anything ungodly. And women can have close sisters as well without it being sexual. David and Jonathan had a wonderful friendship and as he pictured his friend and his body, his friend's body was lying slain on a hill. David was overcome with grief. And so the lament ends the way it started. Saul and Jonathan, king and prince, 
mighty in battle like weapons of war, used by God in the past to save his people in wonderful ways, but now lying dead. Verse 27. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Such sad poetry, isn't it? It's sad because it's about the death of a loved one. David loved Jonathan, and he lost him. He mourns him. And there are many people in our church who are carrying the, the pain of grief. We grieve for those whom we have lost. Some of us recently, some of us a long time ago. One of the things about grief is that it's meant to be shared. Right? David grieved as he wrote this lament for the whole of Judah to share. Some of us didn't really get to share our grief because of COVID. That was hard. Some of us find it hard because we are still in the middle of grief, which is understandable, but other people seem to have moved on. Then how to share? Brothers and sisters, we are told in Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep. Who do we need to go and weep with this week? And if you are in grief, who can you share that grief with in the community of God's people? This lament is sad because it is about the death of a loved one. But it also teaches us that grief is meant to be shared. Another reason why it's so sad is because of all the good things that Saul did. Saul started out so well, you remember? And the lament picks up some of the ways God, God blessed his people through him. But, but remember, his heart turned away at the end. He became disobedient and he died under God's judgment. And it's so sad when, when someone who started out well, who served God well, ends up wandering away from him. And if they die in that state, then it is so tragic. Please don't let that be you. Pray that I don't let that be me. But if you've wandered from God, if you've let your heart become hard to Him, then please repent and come back before it's too late. This lament is sad because it brings to remembrance the positive in Saul, which only adds to the tragedy of his end. Saul's fate is even sadder because he was God's chosen, anointed king. He was the leader God gave his people. You could say that he was the one they hoped to be, you say that they hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But at the end, he died in the hands of God's enemies, and it looked to them like God was weak. And not only did he bring shame to himself, he brought shame to God's name in his death. And for those who love God, that too is sad. It's also sad when the righteous suffer with the wicked. Now Paul, uh, David doesn't talk about that here because he doesn't want us to, he doesn't want to highlight Saul's wickedness, but in the context of 1 and 2 Samuel, that is a stark reality. There is no solution to the problem in 1 and 2 Samuel. It's only there when you read the whole Bible. But then we discover that perfect justice is not done in this world. God judges nations and tribes and people corporately in history, but only after death, at the final judgment, that judgment is perfectly titrated to every individual. 
And it's only at the final judgment that justice is done and seen to be perfectly done. Jesus, the true righteous judge, will bring justice in the end, but for now things seem unfair at an individual level. Soldiers and children both die as one nation invades another. And righteous Jonathan dies in battle with his unrighteous father. And they are lamented in the same breath. That is another reason why this is so sad. Brothers and sisters, this lament, as part of Holy Scripture, gives us permission to lament. There are some Christians who think that it is only spiritual to rejoice. But that is not the Bible's perspective. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And the Holy Spirit in the Bible gives us permission to lament. And not only that, he gives us an example of how to lament. For this shows us that as we grieve, as we grieve, particularly as we grieve publicly, we can grieve for the good things that we have lost without necessarily having to highlight the bad. Right? There, are many, there are many terrible things that David could have said about Saul. And at this point, he has chosen to highlight what is good. In our culture, not many of us will write laments. But some of us may be called upon to deliver eulogies. A eulogy is not a balanced assessment on the life of the departed. Don't need to list all the good things and list all the bad things, come up with a conclusion. A eulogy is not a judgment. Jesus will, Jesus will do that. And please, no one say, well done, good and faithful servant at the funeral. There is only one person who can say that, and it's not you and it's not me. If a eulogy is anything like lament, it is there to remind us of what we have lost. It's a way of giving expression to grief by taking us back to the good things in the life of the departed. And we can do that with our friends and our family members. In fact, whether or not they were even believers, we can do that. It's not to say there's never a time for us to consider the failures of those who have gone before. The Bible itself is very honest about reporting Saul's sins. 1 Samuel is full of them. Sometimes, though, it is right to just remember the good things and may the Lord Grant us wisdom in working out what to do when. As we think about God's king and his son lying slain on Mount Gilboa, our thoughts turn to another mount a thousand years later, where another anointed one died under the judgment of God. Picture again that gazelle, that beautiful slain gazelle lying on the mountain. And in your mind's eye, let that picture change to that of a spotless lamb, slain for the sins of the world. Then join the women in Luke 23 who traveled from Galilee with Jesus, standing at a distance, watching as Jesus' lifeless body was taken down from the cross. 
Share the grief of the two disciples in the next chapter, traveling on the third day from Jerusalem to Emmaus as they explain what happened to a fellow traveler. He then speak in a lofty way about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And tell about how their chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And feel their pain as they lament. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then think about how strange it is that no one in Jesus' day wrote a poetic lament like the one David wrote for Saul and Jonathan. He was such a famous teacher and healer, and such a loving man. Just a week before that, the crowds had acclaimed him as the coming king. Uh, his death was so tragic, so sad, such a miscarriage of justice at a human level. So many people believed he was the anointed one who, like Saul, died at the hands of God's enemies. But we have no laments written about him at the time. Why? Because he didn't stay dead long enough for them to be written. The fellow traveler that the disciples were talking to on that road to Emmaus turned out actually to be the risen Jesus himself. And then he appeared to his disciples and to many witnesses. And friends, that changes everything. Because now God's king dying is no longer a disgrace. Now we understand that, that even though Jesus died under the judgment of God, he did it to take the punishment for us. And we know this is right because God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. God's enemies didn't win in the end. The cross is no longer our shame. It is our glory. And the resurrection doesn't change, doesn't just change how we think about the death of Jesus. It changes how we think about the death of those who believe in him. Death is still so sad. Lament is still appropriate. We still grieve, but we don't grieve as people with no hope. The resurrection shows us that death is not the end. Those who die in Christ are with him now in spirit, which is better by far. And he will bring them when he comes. And like them, like him, they will be raised in the body. And like him, ascend to the Father. But for people who don't know Christ, our lament is, is even deeper. For those who don't know the forgiveness that Jesus brings are without hope. It is right to love them. It is right to lament them. It is right to grieve their loss. God takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner, he says, and like him we mourn the lost. In Jesus, we see God's heart, don't we? In our gospel reading today, Jesus saw Jerusalem and what he wept over it. He knew the judgment was to come and he pronounced that judgment, but he did so with tears. My friend, if you're listening to this today, and you have not repented of your sins and come to believe in Jesus, it is not too late. It's not too late. You don't have to be the object of God's lament. Repent and believe. Lament is an appropriate response to death in this fallen world. And it's an appropriate response to judgment. But lament will not have the last word. 
in our New Testament reading. The Bible paints a picture of how things finish for God's people. They don't lie slain on a mountain. They dwell in his presence forever, serve him in his temple. There is no more hunger, no more thirst, no more danger. For verse 17 of Revelation 7, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lament is right in this world, but it is not final. Those who mourn will be comforted. For if we trust in Jesus, our story will end in joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us in all the changing scenes of life. We thank you for the permission and the model we see here for lament. Please help us as we grieve to do so well. And please help us to love and support each other in our grief. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the anointed one who died for us. Thank you for raising him from the dead and for the way that changes how we grieve for those who trust in him. Please help us to love the way we did as we mourn, particularly as we mourn the lost. Thank you that the day will indeed come when, when you will bring in a new creation where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and you wipe every tear from our eyes. In our broken and sorrowful world, we long for that day. And so we cry, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.